everyone. Revival Town Podcast. I'm Chuck Tate. That's Andy King. Chuck Tate, how you doing? Doing good, mate. How you doing? Good. How's your back? My back is better, but I tell you what, man, you kind of broke it out with inviting me on that golf outing thing. Well, you know, we were standing on the first tee and you were getting ready to hit the ball and then you turned to us all and said, I wonder if this is going to mess my shoulder up again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's so funny is, yeah, I had frozen shoulder and I had gone to physical therapy for um, a few months and it's done so much better and I quit physical therapy a long time ago, but I, I didn't, you know, I never really tried swinging a golf club it's been like three or four years since i've been out playing and well you stood me up one time oh, I, hey let's not talk about that yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i had to dust off my clubs and i got up and i swung took that first swing and of course i didn't go to a driving range to practice beforehand yeah. you know silly me plonker plonker but i got up there and was like ooh, that that, that, that felt interesting <laughs> But I made it. Hey, hey, we all made it. We made it. But we are glad that uh, there's a new pastor in town. And uh, I kept seeing pictures of him at some really nice golf courses. So I was like, Mm. hey, shall we invite him? And we are glad we did. He carried us. Oh, man. Pastor Chad from Richwood's Christian Church carried us. I am so glad he was there. I mean, I'm glad you were there, too. And my dad played as well. But I got to drive him around all day. Yeah, you were were like driving Miss Daisy. like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know. I was like, so, hey, tell me a few things you don't like about your son. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he said it was like a counseling session. (laughs) (laughs) Pastor John. My co-host on this podcast is killing me. No, <laughs> no, it was a, it was a great time. Thanks for having me. Man. Oh, that it was, was good. Uh, it was it was really good. Just a little golf out and that little was in best town. ball. Yeah, best ball and uh, King Putt was on the green. That's you, King, King Andy Putt. King, King Putt. I called your dad the putting pastor. He, yeah. I was impressed with his short game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not good at uh, hitting it long, but it won't get us on the green. We'll be all right, you know? Hey, well, you got to see. I don't even use my driver when I drive. I, I use my, my irons. Your irons. I did use good. it a couple times. But you I, were good, mate, with the I, irons. I, 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 I showing to, up hey, hey, showing up with the ping clubs. <laughs> showing us all up. Hey, well, listen. They were a gift. That's all I can say. They were well, a That's gift. a nice gift. Yeah, yeah it was such a blessing. But talking about gifts, I then left there because a friend of mine... <gasps> Yes. It got me tickets to the Ryder Cup. Ryder Cup. How cool was that special? It was incredible, mate. Well, isn't that special? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I was obviously because of my English roots cheering on Europe. And I am not joking. There was like, because of the travel ban, there was less than 2% that were European fans. Everyone else was American fans. Wow. And so, so... you're outnumbered. Oh, big time, big time. But uh, it was amazing to experience. I mean... A Brit outnumbered in Wisconsin. Imagine that. Oh, man. <laughs> tell you. But you know what amazed yeah. me was, you know, there was 30 to 40 mile an hour winds. And we were on the lake. Um, this course goes along the lake, Lake Michigan. And we were on the 13th, 12th, 13th holes. And this wind was bending... The, the flag, not just the flag, but the pole, the pole. right? Wow. Really bad. And these guys, I, you know, because we could see them in the distance teeing off to the green where we were at. And they would be shooting it like 
way, way left because it knew they knew how far it would have to go to yeah. land on the grid. And it, every yeah. time, it was amazing. So when I play my little golf game on my phone, <laughs> now listen, listen, I have to troubleshoot based on, on the wind. wind. Yeah. They're doing it in real life, Andy. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. I mean, and some of the other highlights, it's hard to explain, but that you know, you know, we're about to launch merch, right? In the next few weeks, we're hopefully yes, going to have yes. Revival Town merch, right? Revival we'll talk Town about merch. that. It's coming. Coming, yeah. Um, so they have like this merch tent for the Ryder Cup stuff, right? But mate, it's like, and, and I'm not exaggerating here, it's like the size of a super Walmart. Wow. And as you walk in, there's Ralph Lauren section and there's Nike section and they make, King. listen to this, listen to this, they make. $30 million a day at the Ryder Cup. That's just hard to, hard to. I mean, you couldn't, it. you could you know, the polo. So not just for the a day, not the turn, not for No, no, just for the day. Just for the day. Just for the, they're average, averaging a thousand people through a minute, averaging $250 each, right? Some more, some are spending more than that, some are spending less than that. Wow. Thirty million. It is. I would have been like, you guys got keychains. Oh yeah, that's that's what I got. I got I got one of those things you put by the ball, you know, to mark it. It's two seventy five. A ball marker. A ball marker. Yeah. And I got a hat. You know, I got a hat. Um, yeah. But you know, hats were forty dollars. Wow. You know, I mean, it was crazy. Wow. But wow. forty one will come. <laughs> got to work it in. But you know, yeah. you know, was, this was even even crazy because they knew people were going to have to walk, right? As you left, there was an option to UPS your stuff from so there. So you don't have to lug around your merch yeah. all day. Yeah, and wow. that line was as long as the other lines. It wow. was, I mean, it was a you know a lifetime thing. I've, I've always wanted to go to Ryder Cup. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy for Amazing you. seeing these guys up close. Yeah, Europe didn't win, but boy, it was a great weekend. Thank you, Trent Freeze, who's a huge listener, and um, he... Uh, he works for a company down t- down in Jacksonville that was able to hook this up and uh, yeah, yeah it, was, cool. it was it was a great great weekend. You're right, Trent. Yeah, yeah. He even did some plunker shirts for us. Yes. Sent us up oh, some plunker yeah. shirts. So, oh yeah, such um, a blessing. So yeah, it, but it that was inspired us. Yeah, to create some merch of yeah. our own. Yeah, and it's coming. It's coming. And speaking so. of coming, Anna LeBaron is coming to the mic right now. We're doing a rewind. Yeah, we just thought for this this next. Uh, Three weeks or so, we do some rewinds just because there's some. Because um, we need a break, man. <laughs> well, if James Gordon could get a break, then we could get a break. But oh, yeah. but no, the the big thing for us was that some of these folks that we've got coming on were earlier on in the in the um, life of Revival Town. Yep. So we thought we'd we'd pull some out that were incredible. And yeah. Anna, her story. Tell us a bit about Anna. It's just amazing. So Anna is a, just a dear friend of mine. She is a fellow author with Tinderhouse. Her memoir is called The Polygamous Daughter. Anna was raised in a polygamous cult by the late Ervil LeBaron. She calls him evil. He was evil. She's going to tell the story. It's, yeah. it's riveting. It's, it's, you don't want to go away for this one. Yeah, gut-wrenching. Stay here. But with a, with a great ending. It's amazing to see what God has done in and through Anna and her, her ministry and her story. And we're just grateful that she was willing to come on and share her story. And since we did, she was one of the first 
episodes yeah. that we publish, but we want to give all of our listeners now that we have people listening in all 50 states, 79 countries. Um, we want to introduce them to, to Anna and her story because I know there's somebody listening that I'm, I'm sure you had some things happen to you in your home that were unfair and some things that maybe have traumatized you. And we're sorry those things have happened. And I just know that Anna's story is going to connect with you. And she is a living example of how God can still rewrite a story. He can redeem every story. Yeah. Let him. Well, why don't you sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Anna LeBaron. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. Hey, all right, Andy. Listen, I'm so excited to introduce our, our special guest today on Revival Town. She is a great friend of mine, and she's been a, a blessing to my wife and I. She's also a fellow Tyndale author. Wow. She has a memoir called The Polygamist's Daughter, which we're going to talk about and have her unpack. And, yeah. Um, it's an emotional, powerful story. And then she's also a social Perfect. media expert and a book launcher. And you're just gonna you're gonna love her. So I can't wait for you to meet her. Right I know now, you've Andy. been talking about <laughs> it for a long time, and so I'm glad to be able to sit down and and unpack this and and hear this story. Awesome. Well, let me introduce her officially. I'm excited to be here. So <laughs> Anna LeBaron is in the house. Anna, so great to have you on. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. You're so very welcome. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Chuck, and to um, engage with your audiences in the different ways that you've invited me to do so in the past. And now we get to do it again. Hey, I'm so excited. Well, you've been on 41 Strong, and you've you've um, shared your story at Rock Church, and now um, you are here with us today on Revival Town. So I'm just going to turn you loose because um, people I know will will be inspired by your story. They'll be touched by your story. There's there's so much to it. And I mentioned it just a moment ago, your book, The Polygamist's Daughter. When I read it, I could not put it down. I just literally read it within a, within a couple of days, just hours, just, just entrenched in it. I had to find out what happened next. And, um, and that was a, a few years ago, you know, a couple of years ago or so. And Recently, I just downloaded your book on Audible, which you got to narrate, and I'm getting ready to, mm-hmm. to listen to your book because, you know, yes. I was so, um, again, just in, really impacted by your story. So I can't wait for um, our audience to be able to hear you. They're going to hear you right now. So why don't you just mm-hmm. introduce yourself for those who are unfamiliar with you, and then mm-hmm. we'll jump right into your, your story. Okay. So you said you were going to listen to the Audible edition. Uh, one little fun fact before I get started is that I had to audition to record my own book. <laughs> and um, for those of your audience members who have an Audible account already, if you update your app, you will find that you're part of Audible Plus. And my book is available to read on Audible Plus or listen to on Audible Plus 
without using one of your credits up. Oh, wow. So, fun little thing for your audience members who are already subscribed to Audible. Merry Christmas. The Pilgrimage Daughters is yours. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, I'm Anna LeBaron. Um, I used to be very ashamed of my last name, LeBaron, because of all the things that uh, became associated with that last name. You can Google my father's name, Ervil LeBaron. It's like evil, but with an R. And so for the longest time, I lived my adult life without telling people that I met, people that I was friends with, and people that I associated with any details about my past because it was so difficult to talk about and to, um, and to just let people see who I was, to see the family of origin that I came from. To give you an idea, my father, Erville Baron, was known as the Mormon Manson. He, um, the news media outlet, um, dubbed him the Mormon Manson when they would report on the atrocities that he was responsible for in the uh, 70s and 80s, where most of the criminal activity that took place under his um, instruction happened. And they called him that because he would order hits on people who had left his cult or who were rival cult leaders. And those hits would be carried out by his followers, much like Charles Manson that became very famous in the news for a long time. He was also called, uh, our, his group was called the Mormon Mafia. If that gives you any idea of the kind of activities that were happening and the way people felt who had joined the cult and then had no way to get out, even if they wanted to. Many people stayed in long after they um, had already decided that this was not part of something they wanted to be part of um, because there was not a way out without putting a target on your back that they knew would be carried out. So it wasn't like it was just a idle threat. Um, his followers knew that they would be hunted down and they would be shot and killed. And they used a term called blood atonement to justify mm. their actions. And the term blood atonement, if you just Google it, it is a term that means that was, this was a doctrine um, that was taught by the early founders and the early prophets of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, Joseph Smith and uh, Brigham Young. So blood atonement means that there are some sins that the blood of Christ cannot cover, and therefore you have to have your own blood spilt and shed and spilt upon the ground in order to atone for that sin. And so in my father's world, um, betraying him was one of the sins that called for that. And anybody that left his cult, that was a betrayal to him. Mm. And so it became very quickly, not just a way in his mind, a spiritual act of mercy to help people go to heaven, because that's what he thought. That's what blood atonement actually started out as. Like, we want you to go to heaven, so we want your your sins atoned for. And so uh, it just became, instead of a spiritual act, which is really backwards if you think about it, um, it became an act of revenge. 
and, and but it was still justified in my father's mind. So the two doctrines that were practiced by my family of origin that were so devastating um, were polygamy, which means having more than one wife at the same time. Um, my father had 13 wives and fathered with those women uh, 51 children. Um, there were also stepchildren involved that, from the women that had children from previous marriages. So in total, there were like 65 kids that were part of this um, cult, born into it or brought into it. And um, so the, the two doctrines, polygamy and blood atonement. And, and I also want to differentiate for your audience um, between the fundamentalist Mormons who continue practicing the original teachings that are in the sacred text of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They want to be called fundamentalist Mormons, so out of respect, that's what I use the term. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints wants to be called that, spelled out with all the words, Um, and so out of respect to them, I do that. But there is a difference between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the modern-day version, where in so many ways they have cleaned up their act as far as these doctrines and these teachings that have been so damaging and devastating um, to a lot of people. And these are not just the only two that they have disavowed along the way. And so we continue to hope that there are more of them that they disavow moving forward because there are so many ways that the teachings of that church are harmful to the lives of the people that follow it. So... Back to my father, though, he was a fundamentalist Mormon. He practiced polygamy, and then he believed that he was a prophet. And so in the teachings, um, there's a phrase called the one mighty and strong. Mm. And my father believed that he was the one mighty and strong that was set upon the earth to set the house of God in order. That's the verbiage that's used. So... He thought that he was the one mighty and strong, meaning everybody else, all the other prophets, quote unquote, or polygamous cult leaders that were on the earth, because there were a lot of them, um, all the other ones were false prophets, which meant they needed to be blood atoned Mm. because they were false prophets walking around the earth preaching false doctrine because they weren't naming him as the one mighty and strong. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine? I always thought Andy was the one who was mighty and strong, and now I'm realizing (laughs) that perhaps, no, I I, honestly, that's really hard to to, to comprehend. And let me just ask you, as a a child, I mean, obviously now you're, you're, you're grown and you've had so much time to reflect on everything that happened in your upbringing. And of course, all that came out when you, when you wrote your book, but as a young girl, did did you think something was off, or because it was the only life you knew, did you just accept it? I mean, I'm sure they pounded it into you, but in, down deep in your heart, did you question some of these things, or, or no? No, when you're born and raised in it, it is your normal. Gotcha. Now, some kids... You know, some of my siblings have different experiences of how they perceived their surroundings and the things that were happening around them, um, and and their experiences might be different than mine. But for the most part, it's your normal, and we're taught to lie. 
we're taught that the outsiders are wicked and evil and that the authorities, the police who were after my father, it was both the FBI and the Mexican police, depending on whether we lived in the U.S. or Mexico, that were after him and after his followers that were committing these crimes. And so we were taught to lie. We were taught to evade. Um, we moved around so much that it is difficult to trace back um, the houses where we lived or the addresses because some were just so brief that we didn't even have time to memorize the address. You know how you can think about an address where you lived years ago and it's still in your memory because you used it so much? Sure. There were so many houses we lived in that we couldn't name the address if we tried Wow. So it was normal for you to be ripped out of your bed in the middle of the night and you just would move on a moment's notice, correct? Yes, that happened so often it just became the norm. We rarely had time to pack things up and move um, like normal people. Um, we weren't normal. There was nothing normal about my childhood. It was so abnormal and so um, awful that it created um, things in my life and patterns in my life and habits in my life that I am working out of my life in spiritual ways to this day. Wow. You, you mentioned about uh, your siblings. Uh, are, you, are you close with any of them now? Um, are, are some still in... Um, you know, and, and, and believe in the teaching still? I mean, I mean, what, how, how is that? Like, what's a family gathering like? You know, it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't have very many family gatherings where everyone <laughs> is present. I don't think that's ever happened, ever. <laughs> so um, I am happy to, to say that the cult that my father started and that was alive and well and active for decades has completely disbanded. Oh. There is nobody that believes my father was any kind of prophet, which I'm grateful for. Many, many, many times there is something about a cult or a cult-like situation that people find themselves in that there's just so many things about it that are good or redemptive where you know, even though there's other evil practices happening around them, there are so many aspects of it that are good that draw people in and keep people in these places where they find themselves going, wait a minute, I don't know about this, but it seems good. You know, there was nothing good going on in my father's cult. Right. And because of that, because of how awful and evil his practices were and how frightening it was, for the people who lived it, um, everybody left. Wow. Now, it didn't happen just quietly, and no people weren't able to just go in the night and live their life in peace. No, if they left in the middle of the night, they lived their life in fear for decades, waiting for somebody to come and find them. There were people who, after my book came out, and I was able to articulate and say, there's nobody in my father's cult anymore that trying to hunt down anybody, um, there are people that have come out of hiding. Wow. Since my book came out and they found out, and then because I've been doing these podcast interviews and media interviews, and I've said it over and over, um, 
people are getting the message that uh, the LeBarons aren't uh, don't have to be afraid of us anymore, because for a lot of years, people were afraid of the LeBarons, and with good reason. There were no idle threats happening with my father. When he said this would happen, it would happen, unless something just went wrong. And oftentimes, they did go wrong, and some people's lives were spared. Wow. Um, and you may talk about this more in, in this story, but um, what happened to your father? What? Tell us a bit about that. He, um, he committed the first, um, he ordered the first hit in 1973, and it was carried out by one of his followers, his most ardent uh, follower, Dan Jordan. He ordered a hit on his own brother, who had power that he was jealous of, and who had the love of the people that they were supposed to be co-leading. Um, his brother had the love of the people, and he was jealous of that. So he ordered a hit on his own brother, making it a modern-day Cain and Abel story, um, with my father being the modern-day Cain. That was in 1973. So he was wanted by the law um, after starting with that incident and then all the way up through the late 80s there were hits being carried out that he had ordered and eventually 28 to 38 people 28 confirmed deaths 38 depending on which investigator is counting carried out by my father's followers he never um, pulled the trigger on anybody um, he would order and mastermind all of them. Wow. So eventually, the police and the FBI did catch up with him. It was the Mexican police this time um, that finally, after many, dec- you know, a long time of searching for him and his followers, they caught up with him in Mexico. And then just like you see in the movies, he was taken to the American border where the FBI agents took custody of him at the time. And then uh, they tried convicted him, and sentenced him to life in prison. And this was after some of the people who had carried out some of his uh, the hits that he had ordered were tried and acquitted. Wow. Yes. And then when he got tried and convicted and sentenced to life, um, that, of course, put him away uh, for good, even though they had us praying, that, you know, day and night for his, you know, released from prison. I remember as a little girl gathering in a circle with my family members on the carpet and kneeling down and holding hands and praying so piously and so faithfully uh, that my father would be released. And you know how there's sometimes when your prayers don't get answered in the way that you are really hoping they'll get answered. Uh, I feel like that's one of the times when even though I was praying from a little child's heart and really praying, mm. you know, faithfully and hopefully and where God just said, no, honey, that's not going to be good for you. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to let just things be as they are Yes. for now. And then eventually my father uh, died in prison. I have a lot of um, conspiracy theories about how he died that we don't need to go into that's probably not the subject of this podcast. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And he, even, he died in prison. And he even carried out a hit while in prison, didn't he? He ordered, he, he, le- he left 
um, a big document, um, inches thick of writing that involved ordering hits on the people that had betrayed him. And betraying him, in this case, in, in some of the cases that, of this book that he left, meant that he had ordered his followers to come to the prison, maximum security prison, guns a-blazing, to bust him out. And they wouldn't do it because they knew this was a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. And they didn't do it. And so he considered that a betrayal. Wow. And so, yes, he left that, and it was smuggled out and got into the wrong hands. And even though he died in prison when I was 12, um, it was 1981, so now I'm like giving you dates where you can find out that, yes, I'm 51 years old. Um, so <laughs> I was 12 when he died in prison. The hits that he ordered continued to be carried out by the people who got a hold of those documents. Wow. And it just, um, it, it was so devastating and such a frightening way to live your life in constant fear. The people who were in the cult were in constant fear, constant state of fear, and the people who had gotten out or who were targets also living their lives in constant fear of what my father and his followers would do, mm-hmm. even after he died. Everybody knew there was still a threat even after he died. Wow. So as a, as a young girl, you were accustomed to just packing up, and and I know one story. You were, you were in the back of a U-Haul, right? That went to mm-hmm. Texas or Mexico, and and yeah. you got ripped away from your your mother for a time. And yeah. I just I know that when I when I read read your book, I just my heart broke for you as a little girl. The things that you encountered and being separated from your mom, and and the stories of you being in Mexico, being raised by one of the sister wives, correct, who was not it, nice it to was you. convert. Con- People convert. that had converted okay. to him. Okay. Uh, but, yeah, and, and someone who's not your mom, who's mean to you, and you were forced right. at a very young age to get on a bus in Mexico and, and pedal things door to door, right? I mean, your life was yes. at risk regularly. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the polygamous uh, cult, in polygamous families and communities, the communities are supported on the back and on the slave labor of the children. You are put to work in, in almost every case of polygamy. Children are put to work at a very young age, and they don't get to benefit from or receive the wages for their labors. Um, I was put to work at a very young age, and the incidents that you're talking about in Mexico, I was nine, um, being um, given to the neighbors next door as household help, so I was the help, and then my wages were collected by them, and they were used for their own benefit, and of course to feed the family and to contribute to the family, but I didn't get to benefit from those wages, Mm-mm. and I was sent door to door selling things like cake slices, for instance, or we would gather rocks and paint them 
And then I would go door to door, filling them as paperweight, which I am so grateful for all the people who just had mercy on this little child that was selling paperweight door to door and fed us. Like that was the money that they used to buy the beans and tortillas that we ate day and night, day and night, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, beans and tortillas, period. Wow. I mean, today, to this day, I go to Mexican restaurants and I love Mexican food. Hello, chips and salsa um, and queso. Ooh. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Come on. I go Revival. to Mexican Revival restaurants. Town. <laughs> and, it's a Mexican you know, I, restaurant. I order my... <laughs> I order my food a la carte. Like I want those tacos, but don't don't at me with any of those beans and rice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had more than enough. My fair share. No, thank you. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness. So it was just a very difficult um, way to live. Um, we were just we lived in abject poverty. We there was never enough. My father never worked and earned a dime in his life. Everything that he had was because the members of his cult contributed to whatever the cause was. He never worked. And so we did not have what we needed in any way, shape, or form. You know the the um, the hierarchy of needs that t- people talk about where it's just your basic needs have to be met before you can you know, move on to the next one and, you know, go on to, you know, whatever that top layer is with whoever gets there anyway. But um, that bottom layer of just your basic needs being met, food and shelter and clothing. Man, yeah, well. We, We had to go and dumpster dive in the back of grocery stores to feed ourselves. Wow. And I was 11, 10. And nine years old, going and dumpster diving in the dumpsters for food, and then being lowered into these Goodwill boxes to hand out the contents so that we could go home and put clothing on people and, and stealing from the Goodwill boxes. And, and sometimes the, you, the people. you would even drink milk from the dumpster, correct? I just... Yes, of course. We all. I mean, sometimes the stores would throw it away because it had expired, but. Once in a while, it was still edible. You know, yogurt and things like that, that they that was too close to the expiration date for them to sell. They would just toss it. And we thought that was incredible. Like, that's how you know how difficult your life is, is if you're in the back of a dumpster rummaging around in the muck, in the gook, and and you find um, a Yoplait yogurt. And you think, oh, woo. <laughs> wow. My I'll first taste what, of I'm, a Yoplait yogurt was from a dumpster. <laughs> I am never going to complain about a meal again. Andy. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I know um, uh, with what we experience at the Dream Center with our homeless shelter and some of the ladies that come in with families and whether they've been living in a car for many months or last year we found a, a couple that were living in a tent and they'd been living in the tent for three years less than a mile from the dream center where there's a shelter uh but but it's you know you know this chuck it's minus 20 yeah and so for Mm -hmm. three years they've been living and and 
experiencing some of the things that you're experiencing about looking for food and um, you know we we just at the Dream Center launched uh, a mobile division where uh, we're going to have mobile showers and a food truck and a barber shop and laundry so that we can go into areas where uh, families are not just homeless. Uh, there are families in cities all around that are struggling even to for water. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. what, you're, what you're saying is, is so real in so many ways. There's the poverty level... Of, of what happens in cities throughout the world and in America um, it is real. And uh, mm-hmm. you, when you mentioned about the milk and the, that happens, that happens in towns, wherever you are listening, that happens in towns mm-hmm. yeah. day and night. And not only did, did you have that, that, that ache for, for food, but the, you really didn't know your dad, and there was a, a, a desire to what have a relationship with him. I just remember a story where you injured yourself, and you finally thought you were getting your dad's attention, but it was to go run an errand for him, right, to the drugstore. Mm-hmm. Can, you, yes. can you tell that story? Yeah. Well, I was living in Mexico, like you said. I had been abandoned there um, and living in, under the care, if you can call it that, of some of his converts. And they did not appreciate the extra work and everything required to care for additional children. And so we were mistreated. Um, and I, it was while I was in Mexico in their care that I met my father for the first time ever and saw him with my own two eyes for the first time. I was nine years old and um, I had two experiences where I was one-on-one with my dad and the one where you're talking about um, where uh, I was, I had cut my leg quite um, previously and it required stitches, but that was not something that we could afford with medical care. And so they butterfly band-aid, you know, the cut and hoped for the best. And then it was that day that my father, you know, I was told on a come here and we're going to send you to the pharmacy and in Mexico, the farmacia, you know, so I thought, Oh, they, I've finally been noticed. My need has been noticed, and I'm going to be cared for. And instead, it was, here's some pesos. Your father has a headache. Go quickly and run and buy him some medicine okay, for his can, headache. Can imagine that, and Andy. So, um, oh, and so it was yeah. just a deflating experience to think my needs are noticed finally, and then wait a minute. Nope, not not today. That's not happening today. Um, my father's needs were more important. I mean, we watched him as we were just eating beans and tortillas if we were lucky. Um, meal after meal after meal. When he came and he was in the house, we got to smell steak and potatoes cooking in the skillet, and that's what they would feed him. And all we got to do was smell it. Wow. Boy, you went through you went through so much, but you eventually did escape. And yes, you that's came, a spoiler alert. To, yes, way to go, way to go. Spoiler. And you and you and you I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! I'm just the the 
the story of the pharmacy and you cutting your leg is just, yeah, just, man, rip my heart out. Um, yeah. But you, so you, you it did was escape. after my dad died. To, yeah. Okay. After your dad died and, yeah. you, and you came to Christ as well. So, yes. Um, I, so another spoiler, I'll just tell that story because it is significant. Um, when, after my dad died, we had been, when he died, we had been living in Houston and we had lived in the house the longest I'd ever lived anywhere. And for the first time had some semblance of consistency and some rhythm. And we had lived in the same house for almost a year, <laughs> which was incredibly wow. um, settling when you're moved from house to house so quickly, you can't even keep track of your address. Uh, and we had lived in that house for, um, for over a year or almost a year when my dad died. And his dying in prison just created upheaval in the different factions of the cult that he was leading. There were factions of his cult in Houston, Dallas, uh, Phoenix, um, Denver, in California, Arizona, uh, Mexico. There were different factions, and this was in the early 80s. There wasn't email. There wasn't cell phones and ways of communication. It involved long-distance phone calls on phones that had cords that were connected to a wall, yeah. if y'all remember those. You know, what, what is um, this so thing you speak of? <laughs> I know, like with the little coily things that would get tangled if you pulled on them too hard. Um, but so those were, that was the method of communication, and it was quite expensive to, to do that. Um, or letters. You could mail a letter. <laughs> so there was a lot of upheaval when my father died. And the man who had been running the Denver faction was one of my dad's, uh, we, we considered him his right-hand man. Um, he was the one who carried out the first hit that we talked about earlier. And when we had been living in Denver, Dan Jordan was treating us no better than slaves. Literally not better than slaves. We, we were his slave labor. We worked 12-hour days as kids. We're fed barely enough to keep body and spirit intact. And we're taken out of school at young ages and put to work. And then my brother that was older than me had been working in the Houston faction. He came to Denver and moved us to Houston. My mom and all her children and moved us to Houston. And in Houston, where we were living for that period of time where we had a little bit of security and my mom would be paid for her work. She could shop for groceries in the grocery store. You know, it's like when you can buy a gallon of milk um, and pour it over a bowl of cereal that you didn't pick out of the trash and, and you think you're eating like a king or a queen, in my case, you think you're eating like royalty. That, that's the situation that we had in Houston where my mom could stop for groceries in the grocery store and... And I had, for the first time in, you know, to take to school with me, um, a, a lunch that looked like the other kids. I wasn't embarrassed of the little mashed up beans in, on bread wrapped up in an old tinfoil container that we had in Denver. I could take a lunch that had a sandwich with bologna and cheese on it, which I thought was like the, the food of the gods, you know, um, <laughs> 
And there was a sandwich and a little sandwich baggie and another baggie with some Oreos in it and another baggie with some Doritos in it. You know, I'm ready some for flavors that, <laughs> yeah, some flavors that are, that have remained with me as favorite my whole life wow. because of those early impressions. But I, I could take my lunch in a brown paper bag with my name on it to school. And that was such a big deal to be able to walk into school and not be ashamed at the lunch table. Wow. And just so that was my experience in Houston. We were paid for our work. We got to work. No no doubt about it. In polygamous communities, they're you know, they're supported by the children um, working. But we were paid five dollars a week for our work. Which when you've been a slave and you're there and you're starting to give five dollars a week for working, you know, giving some um dignity to the work that you're doing yeah. um, it just I was able to save up five dollars a week after week and then after about six weeks I could afford to go into Marshall's and buy a pair of jeans you know the Gloria Vanderbilt jeans with the little white swan stitched on the pocket I have some and, <laughs> um, no, I don't and walk out with a pair of jeans that fit me um, that fit properly and then I saved up again six more weeks and had enough money to go into Marshall's again and buy a pair of Nike tennis shoes, two-tone brown with the swoosh on the side, you know. And I was just, like, I was 13 years old. And life was starting to feel like it was normal and good, even though I was still in a cult. And so after my father died, it was not many months after that, probably six to nine months after that, that my, the man in Denver um, convinced my mom that Mark, who was in charge of the Houston faction, he convinced my mom that Mark was putting Irville's children on a path to hell by allowing us to go to the movies like normal kids and taking us roller skating and um, allowing us to listen to secular music and, you know, different things like that. And so my mom became afraid again and, and decided to uproot and move to Denver or back to Denver. And that's when I got wind that my mom was planning to uproot us and take us back to Denver. I was 13. And there was a part of me that as a 13-year-old who was just getting to that age where you can like look around and see what's happening to you among the adults and kind of observe some things and know some things <clears throat> and when I observed and knew that my mom was planning to take us, back, take us back to Denver I called my older sister who was married to Mark who was running the Houston faction and had five children of her own at the time so she was much older than me I called Lillian and said I don't want to go to Denver and she said to me start walking so I hung up the phone with that little coily cord, put it back on the shelf in the hallway where it was kept, and then made sure I was wearing my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans and my Nike two-tone tennis shoes and walked out of my house with just the clothes on my back. I walked a little over three miles when she found me and picked me up, and I was on my way to her house. I knew I had a GPS in my brain. And I knew how to get to her house. It was installed from the factory, you know, that GPS, which became really handy on that day. 
And so I knew how to get to her house. And I was heading there when she found me and picked me up. So it was a little over three miles. So if you've done any walking or running, you know that a little over three miles is a 5K. So I call that now my 5K to freedom. Wow. So I was still in a cult. However, um, God had different plans. And I go into detail in the book about, sure. you know, the, the things that were happening that caused Mark Emilian to make this next decision that I'm going to tell you about, because there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Yeah. There's a lot that happened previous to the decision being made that I go into in the book. And but I want to encourage our listeners to, to, to get the book and you get the full story. So good. Again, it's called The Polygamous' yeah. Daughter by Anna LeBaron. So... Um, they enrolled me in a little Christian school that was just down the road from their home, like half a mile. And it was there that I was given the opportunity to, um, to accept Christ and for God to become my father. Because the Bible does say, you know, I will be the father to the fatherless. Yep. And so God actually fathering me began before I came to Christ because as soon as my father was no longer on earth, God became my father and began orchestrating these things and these events and the circumstances that brought me to him. And here's the other part of that. Even before my father left the earth, when I was 12, even before that, long before that, I was a fatherless girl. And he was fathering my heart yeah. from the beginning and orchestrating events, circumstances, and people that led to me being enrolled in that little school and led to me being offered the opportunity to accept Christ. Wow. And here you are, a follower of Jesus with an incredible story, and God was with you, and looking back, you can see that he always was with you and he's with everybody listening right now. And yeah. um, I know that um, there perhaps could be somebody listening to this moment who is, is struggling because of an upbringing, because of horrific things that had been done to them. I mean, you, you don't have to tell it now, but in the book, you, you were even being groomed at a young age to, to be a wife. And so many things happened that should have never happened to, to a little girl. To a teenage girl yeah. but God was with you and I think um, that is so encouraging for everybody that's listening that's in a season right now where they're struggling they're hurting they're even asking themselves where where is God can you take a moment and pray for our listeners as um, obviously we yeah. don't we don't know everything that's going on in their life but God does and you're living proof we don't have to yes amen yeah. yes amen we don't don't have to know um, everybody that's going to be listening. Um, and so the, the ways that I describe my childhood, you don't have to be born into a polygamous cult to experience the kinds of things that I did. Um, childhood trauma, neglect, and abuse. Those are universal things that happen to children all over the world. And so if that's the case for you and you've experienced that um, I do want to pray so father you are the father to the fatherless 
and you have the power to orchestrate events, circumstances, and people to accomplish the good, to accomplish the blessing that you desire all, all of your children to enjoy. Whatever is blocking those things from happening, because sometimes there are things that block those, would you remove those blockages? Yeah. Would you be the one who opens the eyes of the people who need to see the ways that you are already moving in their favor and for their good. When, when Jesus was born, the angel said, he, you know, that I have good news. There is peace on earth and goodwill to men. And that just means that you love people. You love everyone and you will good to everyone. And he wants to will good for you too. And for you to see those things that are happening around you as the good that he intends for you. And so, Father, would you open the eyes of our heart, our spiritual eyes, to be able to see? Um, would you open our ears so that we can hear and give our mouths the ability to taste and see the things that are good around us that you have provided, that you have orchestrated, and allow us to the clarity of thought to be able to thank you for those things as you are still in the process of bringing us to the place where we can enjoy the things that you have given to us. Because oftentimes when you're in the process, it's hard to enjoy. And so bring us to that place and help us to see everything that you're doing in the meantime. And to thank you for those things. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. So good, huh, Andy? Oh, man, I was like... So, and I, I say all of that, <laughs> and as I prayed that prayer, I was praying it over myself, Chuck, because yeah. there are things that I am experiencing in my life today that yeah. are difficult. And that God is using and orchestrating to bring me into a closer relationship with him. Amen. Things that are difficult. That are happening to me today. So I'm not exempt. Right. I'm not, you know, I'm not part of the people that get to live their life all willy-nilly and, you know, without a care in the world. Um, I still have cares in the world. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and that he is orchestrating and that he's using. And and things that he's doing in my life today that is part of the healing process for the things that happened to me in my childhood. My healing journey has been one that's been decades long. Yeah. Wow. Well, we, we definitely need to have you back. And, um, I mean, you got the preach on right now. And I think, <laughs> um, Andy, we need to do a episode where we invite Anna back to talk about social media and to talk about... yeah. Um, book launching and all of those, all of those fun things. But um, Anna, I want to. Um, can you can you tell 
our listeners how they can connect with you, whether it's through social media or a website. Um, you have mm-hmm. coached me on TikTok. I'm just going to say that. So yes. go follow yes. Anna on TikTok. <laughs> you will love it. Yes. Yes. So I am, um, my website is AnnaLeBaron.com. And then on every social media app that I have an account, it's Anna K. LeBaron. Okay. And so you can find me in those ways on all the different um, social media platforms that exist. That, like, And I'm on a lot of them. I'm not active on all of them. So uh, that, that's a different thing. So if you're <laughs> wanting to connect with me and private message me, um, if you do it through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok, you'll get a response quicker than any other way. Okay, good, good. Well, we... Uh, Anna, we do a, a thing at the end of uh, every interview uh, called the Big Three. Okay, and so these are just random three questions, right? Uh, and so, uh, so here we go. You, are you ready? All right, I'm okay. ready. Okay, <laughs> bring it on. If, if you could open a store, what would you sell? Joy. Oh, <laughs> come I on now. Would sell yeah. joy. <laughs> like it's my paying job and I already do. And my store is already open. Awesome. Like, and you can have it for free. You can walk in, grab everything you need. Come on and now. Free. That's good. And, my, <laughs> and, and, and my, the, my daughter's name is Joy. So that, so she would be there uh, as well. So that's good. So, so here's why. Here's why. A lot of people don't know that when you're a believer, you have access to the source of joy. Yeah. The never ending source of joy and when you connect to it and you begin to receive from that source it flows out of your life and overflows onto the people around you amen There's a, so- you know people can learn a lot from you Anna, because you went through some horrific things and you are just dropping some joy on us right now oh man okay question I hope two so. <laughs> Qu- question yes. two let's go uh, have you have you ever gotten an autograph, and if so, by who? Okay, so you broke up just a little bit, and I did not hear the question, so please repeat no, it. No problem. Have you ever gotten an autograph, and if you have, who was it by? Well, I happen to have an autographed copy of 41 Will Come. Oh, so man. that's that. Did he um, pay you to say also, that? No, but really, because of the work that I'm in, because of the work that I do with book launching that Chuck has talked about briefly, um, I have autographed copies of so many books, like tons of them. And it's one of my favorite things to do is uh, when I read an author's book and then they have an event where I can go and meet them in person, get a snapshot with them and and then get them to sign my copy of their book. Wow. So I have a, a whole lot. Oh, okay. All right. We'll, we'll pass you on that. You got a lot. So what about this, this last one? What is the furthest place you have traveled? Well, I have been to Tokyo. I've lived in Okinawa for two years and I've been to Spain and Paris. Wow. wow. And I don't know which one of those are the furthest. I would guess Okinawa. Yeah, but it depends. Which I, I didn't go. know that. How did I not know that? You, you lived in Okinawa. But, um, like, when you listen to my book, the sec- when you listen to it this time, Chuck, you'll probably, like, oh, that's right. She does mention it briefly. 
Um, but what, when what, what you just I found out was tour, Chuck never read the book. I read That's, the book from cover no, to cover. No, there's so much. There's, you can't possibly like keep it all and, and file it all away. But listening to it a second time, you'll find out some details. You'll find some details that you write because you missed them the first time around. Correct. That's like reading your Bible. You read your Bible and stuff pops out at you all the time. Yeah. But My wife Annette tells me to read my own book sometimes. Ooh. Okay, so here's the farthest I've ever traveled for real. When I did my book tour in 2017, I traveled the United States, and that's when I came to Peoria and, and spoke to uh, Rock Church. Um, we traveled uh, 23,416 miles. Whoa. Wow. A lot of miles. A lot of miles. So, Bam. So there you go. There you go. Wow. Anna, thank you so much for, for taking your time to be on Revival Town Podcast and um, episode two. So we're really excited about that. So great to, to have you with us today, especially having someone who was featured on Dr. Oz to have, you know. Oh, man. Come on. Know, come on. Come on. So. That's good. Anyways, thank you yes, so much. That was quite an experience getting to talk to Dr. Oz about my family of origin and um, get to talk about forgiveness wow. and how I was able to forgive my father. Wow. Yes. So I, 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 even wrote, I wrote that down that we, we gonna have, we're going to have to talk about that on a, on a future yeah. podcast, forgiveness, because that's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. I, and I would love to talk to your listeners about it. Brilliant. Well, Anna, thank you. This is first time I've ever met you, but thank you uh, for being with us and putting up with Chuck uh, <laughs> all these years. <laughs> um, but seriously, thank you so much for being on Revival Town Podcast, mm. and we look forward to seeing you in the near future. Well, Andy... We know that many of our listeners heard that story for the first time for us, even the second time. I'll tell you what, just, just what a powerful story. For someone to live through that and come out the other end without um, living in that tragedy for the rest of their life, you know what I mean? There's a lot of people who, they go south from that, yeah. you know. Um, but her story and how she turned it around for good even yeah. though some of the stuff she went through yep and you know there's an organization that is rescuing women that have been caught up in human trafficking and not just women but a21 yeah of course christine found christine kane founded a21 yeah. network and we had nicole jackson yeah on our show last january yeah but we do want to let everybody know about an event Especially those that are in the Peoria area. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking at their website. This is a global march. So wherever you're listening from, uh, if you go to the a21.org website, you'll be able to find out where a walk is in your area. Um, but for those that are in the Peoria area, obviously we have a lot of people listen to us. Um, Nicole that was on uh, heads this up. Uh, and so they're going to be doing this in October on October 16th. Yes, Saturday, October 16th, 10 a.m. to noon. And our church is participating. Oh, good job. Good job. Yeah, they're going to start downtown by the Dream Center at the uh, Peoria Fire Department. And I do believe they walk all the way to East Peoria Fire Department. 
Okay. Which is pretty cool. Okay. Well, I don't know if I'm doing that now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna be there. So, uh, so yeah. So that's uh, that's gonna be a good time just to bring awareness uh, for really something that is everywhere. But as Nicole will, will tell you, um, some of it's hidden. You know, some mm. of it's, it's a silent pandemic it really is it is um and looking for the signs you know we've had nicole with us at the dream center working with our staff and and volunteers on what to look for and things like that and um yeah it's it's helped us uh, even in our uh, human and uh trade trafficking programs at the dream center with the the rooms that we have and the things that we do working with nicole and her team so so if you if you listen to the episode from January, it features Nicole and her story and what she does. So it'd be great to educate yourself on human trafficking and then go to a21.org and sign up. Peoria people, it's slash Peoria. Uh, January 11th, episode 13 was when uh, Nicole was on, on the, the first okay, so season. Season one, yeah. episode 13. Yeah. There you go. So, uh, so yeah, so go and do that. Uh, but you know what Nicole does love when she listens to the podcast bit of this uh tate and his mate tate and his mate (laughs) and uh i got a good one today because you've been getting on a lot of people bring this up to me all the time um so i i do think that um yeah i think people like guessing whether or not i'm going to be able to You've, get, you've got get, a lot lately. Yeah, I've been kind of on a roll. We'll I I, can I keep it going? That's the question. Okay, so I'm, um, I'm, I'm going to put it into context, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, on October 16th, there's going to be Walk for Freedom. Freedom. Yeah, okay. Walk, yeah. And uh, we are going to, uh, at Walk for Freedom, you're probably going to need a Kagool. I'm going to need a who? Kagool. A, a Kadoodle? <laughs> Kagul. Do you want me to spell it? A Kagul. C-A-G-U-L-E. A Kagul. A Kagul. And first time listeners, my mate Andy is British. I am not. At the end of every episode, he shares a British slang word that I have to guess the meaning of. So the word today is Kagul. Kagul. Yeah, you'll need a Kagul. All right. Wait, what? Use it in context? You'll you'll need a Kagul for the march, uh, the walk for freedom. Okay, um... A car? <laughs> I'm going to need a bike. A, I need a bicycle. A cool. I'm going to need um, a fanny pack. <laughs> um, no. A cool. I, I, um, um, a water bottle? A cool. No, I'm going to need... Hey, Mike, don't forget your cool. Um <laughs> I have no idea. Oh, have I got you with this you, one? You got me. I'm stumped completely. This is a kagool is a light raincoat. Ooh, a light yeah. rain. I would have never guessed. Yeah, so you'll hear it in movies like and things. Like a poncho. Yeah, yeah. They'll say, hey, make sure you get your kagool. Make sure you get your kagool. Okay. Yeah, so there you go. Hey, all right, man. So we should get some Revival Town kagools. Yes. Ponchos. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> well, Chuck, it's great doing this uh, with you again. And uh, we're going to have another great uh, episode next week as we do the rewinds. 
Uh, so, Chuck, thanks for hanging out with me again. Hey, thank you, mate. All right, talk to you soon. See you next week. for listening to this episode of Revival Town Podcast. Make sure you're following us on social media and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, head on over to RevivalTownPodcast.com. Oh,